today's conversation is the second in a series exploring Priya Parker's book, The Art of Gathering, which is a masterful guide on making any type of gathering more human-centered, more meaningful, and more rewarding for all involved by clarifying purpose and by rethinking tradition through the lens of that purpose. Well, my guest today has been doing just that here in my home state of Maine. Today, you're going to hear from Emily Isaacson, founder of Classical Uprising, a classical music organization based in Portland that offers a bold rethinking of the classical music experience through immersive events, performances, and educational programs. Welcome to Pivot, the podcast that's dedicated to reversing audience decline through customer-centric innovation. I'm Ruth Hart. So Emily, welcome. I'm so excited about this conversation. Thank you for joining me. I'm so excited to have this conversation. I think about it with myself all the time. So I'm excited to talk to other people about it. Wonderful. So before we dive in, let me just share a little bit about you uh, with our viewers in case they're not familiar with you already. So Dr. Emily Isaacson is known for forging a magnetic rapport with audiences and musicians alike, and is fiercely committed to reimagining classical music for today's audiences. She has been named Artist of the Year by the Maine Arts Commission, one of the 50 Mainers leading the state by Maine Magazine, and the 2018 face of the Women's Work edition of Maine Women Magazine. Equally at home in orchestral and choral conducting, chamber and large ensembles, and with early to contemporary music, Isaacson holds a master's degree in musicology from the University of Edinburgh, Scotland, a master's degree in conducting from the University of Oregon, and a doctorate in conducting from the University of Illinois. A strong advocate for new music, she helped to launch Roomful of Teeth, a Grammy-winning vocal ensemble, which received the 2014 Grammy for Best Chamber Music Small Ensemble Performance. And Isaacson is the founder and artistic director of Classical Uprising, a performing arts company based in Portland, Maine. With over 50 concerts and events year-round, Classical Uprising serves over 6,000 musicians and music lovers through its programs. Let's dive right in. I know you've been reading The Art of Gathering as well. So I want to start our conversation right where Priya Parker starts her book on the importance of being very clear on why we're really gathering. And she writes, when we don't examine the deeper assumptions behind why we gather, we forgo the possibility of creating something memorable even transformative. And she says there's a great paradox here because there are so many good reasons for gathering that we often neglect the crucial exercise of establishing a main purpose for coming together. And so we end up assuming that we're gathering for the activity, the what, and we forget to determine the why. Taking the time to determine the why we gather allows for more value for everyone involved, right? And it makes every decision about that gathering easier. So when I first came across Classical Uprising, I remember being struck by your mission statement uh, and how it just stood out so much from the typical classical music organization mission statement. If, if our viewers haven't seen it, go to their website, classicaluprising.org. It's fantastic. So it was clear immediately that you had thought deeply about purpose and you hadn't just resorted to the standard cookie cutter language. So can you start by just telling us about the purpose or the mission of your organization and how you're leaning into that mission? Sure. 
So long before I started Classical Uprising or thought about being a conductor, my family attended classical music concerts. And I felt as a young person, the power that classical music had to enrich lives, to inspire souls and to strengthen communities. And I've seen it over the course of my career do that transformative work in many different kinds of environments. But I also recognized that the traditional classical concert setup really didn't speak to the 21st century life experience. And for many people really felt like an ordeal. You're asked to put your life on hold, get dressed up, kids are not welcome. You're asked to go to this like cathedral-like symphony hall um, where you're not allowed to talk to your date. There's no chatting, there's no refreshments. And there's these um, mysterious rules of etiquette about what you can and can't do at certain times. And to me, the whole point of music is to feel things. Music gave me a language around emotions that I was able to feel before I was able to articulate them. And so if you're feeling that, why can't you show that with your body? Why can't you comment on that with your date? There, the idea of just sitting still and absorbing that all seemed ridiculous to me. So um, I created Classical Uprising as a nonprofit music collective that creates a variety of musical experiences with this vibrant, soul-centering music. And we chose the name Classical Uprising because we believe that classical music needs to rise up to challenge the current norms of the way that it's been presented and to re-envision where, how, and for whom we are making this music. And I really liked um, uh, Priya Parker's concept around exclusion because this whole idea that by excluding, excluding some people, you're actually creating diversity, that really resonated with me. We create, create different kinds of musical experiences for different kinds of people at different kinds of stages of their lives. And we know that not every experience is going to be suited to every person. But my goal through Classical Uprising is that every type of individual will find their own healing, entertaining, or inspiring experience with this music. I love that. That's that's amazing. So um, one of the things that Parker cautions against is she talks about avoiding being a chill host. I think a lot of us resort to being a chill host these days because it seems like we don't want to intrude on our audiences or the people that are at our gathering. Um, but she says, you know, just providing the venue and the content and even food and drink is not enough anymore. And she says, it, she says, if you neglect your proper powers as host, you're failing your guests. Um, and I think in the classical music world, this happens so much, like implicit expectations about concert etiquette and about musical knowledge often result in little to no communication happening from the stage. And a lot of patrons are just left to sort of fend for themselves when it comes to interacting with the art and with their fellow concert goers, particularly if they are what I call the outsiders, right? The folks who are, we're trying to bring into the fold, um, but who haven't really experienced this world before. Um, and this ends up really not serving anybody, I, I feel, and I think Priya would agree. Um, so instead of assuming that audiences are familiar with concert etiquette and the intricacies of the art form, I think what Parker calls for is this generous authority, right? Um, she says generous authority serves to protect and equalize and connect your guests. And I love that thought. Um, can you talk about the ways that you are using generous authority at Classical Uprising to protect and equalize or connect your guests? 
Sure. This part of the book really cracked me up because I'm just not a chill person and definitely not a chill host. So um, this is it's in my nature to be exuberant or inclusive. Um, and I really leaned into that as a conductor and um, cultural host. I'll be silly. Um, there's a picture on our website of me wearing a cape at our carnival concert. I'll make fun of the oboist in front of the crowd. I'll talk a lot from the stage, trying to break that imaginary wall and invite the audience into the fold. Um, I try and protect our uh, outsiders or soon-to-be believers by telling the entire crowd that there's no shushing and that they should clap or whoop or cheer whenever they feel moved by the music. Um, I try and really equalize the experience by modeling how I want the audience to act or experience the music. And I talk to my ensembles about doing this as well. So instead of saying, this is where you should clap, this is where you should not clap, don't move. Um, if it's something like Purcell's Fairy Queen, which is very playful, I'll dance along with the kids, I'll wave to friends, I'll stop in the middle of conducting and chug a beer, you know, to show that they're allowed <laughs> to do that too. Um, if it's some, if it's a concert that is more about awe and meditation, I'll I'll, um, I'll stop conducting and look at the soloist and he doesn't need me. He's just doing or she doing her thing and like demonstrate that awe of, wow, look at this masterful talent and energy and passion coming out of this person, nodding my head up and down, showing in my face um, how I want them to respond. And I encourage my ensembles to do the same. Um, and then for me, a lot of the beauty of classical music is getting to that meditative, reflective state that, frankly, I find quite hard to do as a busy working mom in the 21st century. And I so I really try and encourage my audience to come into that space um, and to make that space readily available to them um, by being vulnerable about the personal things that I'm thinking about or bringing into this concert um, and how this music has changed my thinking and being as a person, not as a musician. So really as many ways as possible to demonstrate, it's okay to be yourself, your social self with this music rather than asking your, you to change yourself to be around this music. Hmm. It's like the way that we feel when we walk into church, right? We feel like we have to be extremely formal and behave a certain way. But you're saying Absolutely. this is not church. <laughs> Absolutely. I think we've turned the symphony hall into a church. And mm. while appropriate for some things, it's really not appropriate for most things. Mm. Priya also talks about the the idea of etiquette being exclusionary and because it's so implicit. And she, she um, recommends using pop-up rules, which you know, are, are sort of temporary rules that you set forth for your gathering. And it sounds like you're actually modeling them for the audience, which I think is great. Have you have you found that the audience sort of follows you, follows that modeling and gets into it? Yes, I definitely find that by modeling, I create permission. And then whether they're doing what I'm doing or something else, it's this suggestion that the the what you expected for the rules, those rules are off and there are no expectations or new expectations depending on um, what the experience is. I love that. Have you found that people walk in expecting to follow those traditional rules and then end up surprised? Do they like express, you know, surprise to you at the end that it was so different or what is the reaction of the audience? 
So I think that classical music has sent, sends a lot of signals about etiquette and rules and propriety. And I've really tried to look at each of those rules and then turn them on their head to suggest um, new signals. So the first thing that I think about is venue. I love that Priya Parker says every venue has a script. Totally, totally true. Um, and so, as we said, if you're performing in a church, especially, or a concert hall, then you're definitely saying that um, this is a place of worship and that you are lesser and you are appealing to the gods of music and the composer genius. Um, so I try and either put classical music in everyday spaces, farmers markets, school playgrounds, public parks, people go to all the time where they feel comfortable and familiar because they have many memories there. Or I try and put them in a place where they would never dream of hearing a classical music concert. So a bowling alley or a ferry terminal or a hike in the woods. And um, I really like to think about cognitive dissonance, this friction between the script or rules of the space and the script or rules of classical music and how when you don't know how to respond because you're listening to classical music in a bowling alley and there's bowling a couple of uh, lanes over that um, you, you know that the rules are off and so you open your heart to the possibility of the art itself rather than the script. Um, I also think a lot about activity. So my experience growing up of classical music concerts is that you sit very still and don't even think of opening a wrapper to suck on or anything. I mean, it's forbidden, right? And so again, trying to turn that on its head. Um, so in the name of the event, we often include an activity which we're hoping will invite people to bring a different self to that concert. So Bach Ben's yoga or flight of the bumblebeer, where we're inviting members to do yoga or dance or song or drink beer or eat tacos or whatever they would normally be doing in their lives, but alongside or guided by this amazing music. Um, and I think that that freedom, that permission, invitation to physically move your body also allows you to sort of emotionally be more open or receptive to what the, the music um, might offer you. Um, and then we're very conscious about avoiding some of the cues that classical, the traditional concerts give. So you walk into a, a concert hall and you're given a program with composer dates and backgrounds mm -hmm. and you know, it's I all I I who have two masters and a doctorate in music feel like I need classical music for dummies just to read the program notes, not even attend the concert, and that's ridiculous. That's not what the that's certainly not what the composers wanted you to be thinking about. Mm -hmm. So we don't have those. We don't at many of our events. We don't have programs. We don't have program notes. We put the titles of the pieces on a chalkboard, like if you went to a bar, they'd have the beer for the day on a chalkboard, and I speak from the stage in a very informal manner, um, answering and prompting questions in real time, and really trying to make the classical music part of a cultural and social gathering rather than a very specific ritual. That's awesome. That's great. So moving on to this idea of um, generous exclusion. So Parker talks about how the host of any gathering has this responsibility to decide who is included in the gathering, but also who is excluded. And I found this fascinating. She says, over-inclusion is a symptom of a confusion around why you are gathering and a lack of commitment to your purpose. 
And then she goes on, the thoughtful gatherer understands that inclusion can in fact be uncharitable and exclusion generous. Uh, and she sums it up. She says, if, if everyone is invited, no one is invited. So what does, what does this idea of generous exclusion mean for you and for classical uprising? So to me, it's really about packaging. So, you know, I lived in Boston for years and there's all these free tickets for people under 35, but um, they're not changing the experience of the symphony hall. And so if I'm trying to talk to the boy I'm going to date with, or if I want to bring my kid, everyone's still going to stare if my kid is moving around. They haven't changed any of that just because the ticket is cheaper. And so I really um, think about the packaging around classical music and at, and at Classical Uprising, we, we offer three basically different kinds of experiences. And the hope is that through these three experiences, everyone will be able to find the experience that's meaningful and right to them, that feels right for listening and, and connecting to great art, but that not every person is going to want to come to every event. So we have a traditional concert experience, which is what you would expect for nerds and diehards. And people love these. Um, but what's different is we don't have an intermission. I really believe that you create magic. And, you know, Priya talks about ushering um, people in. You've ushered in them into this magical space. Keep them there. So we don't do intermissions. I aim for 70 to 80 minutes minutes of music because I think that's about as much as we can intellectually and emotionally handle. Yeah. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, I really try and share some of my own personal relationship or journey to the music to encourage people to think about not like how this piece was influenced by so-and-so or will influence so-and-so, but like, what does it mean to me in this moment in my life? Um, mm -hmm. And maybe that'll be different than the last time I heard it. Um, and then we have the unexpected experience, which I aim to be immersive and interactive. They're often outdoors. They're often without formal seating. I try and bring in alcohol and food as much as I can. Um, and uh, these are clearly not for the traditional concert goer because there's going to be ambient noise and there's going to be, it's probably at three o'clock and that might not be when you want to come. But I try and create a space that, um, a space and activities that really welcome families, um, but also what I think of as the culturally curious. So people who might go to, uh, you know, the new fusion restaurant or who would go to the MoMA when they go to New York, but would never think about going to a classical music concert. So bringing together some pieces that will entice them or, or question, make them question and be interested. Um, and then the last experience um, we call the salon, but it's really the vibe of a musical dinner party or cocktail hour. And this is how a lot of historically a lot of music was heard in these very social settings with lots of booze around. Um, <laughs> and I really try and create that environment again. Um, again, no program notes. The musicians themselves talk from the stage or from the in front of this, there's not really a stage. Um, <laughs> I encourage talking and questions and dialogue with the audience and all prompt the musicians with questions to get people going. Um, and we try and again, with this culturally curious, we try and put the salons in spaces with other interesting facets that might encourage someone curious to attend. So that new restaurant or really cool art gallery or a beautiful home by the water so that there's more than one entry point into this event that would make you want to go. And what's so fun is that the salons really end up feeling like a party and we often have to close down um, 
the shop because people will just stick around talking forever. <laughs> and that's great. That means that we're building community through music. I love that. I mean, and one of the things that I always talk about is this, you know, the customer timeline, you know, when, when it comes to jobs to be done theory and customer centricity, not every single customer is an aficionado, right? An aficionado. So it, you're offering all these different entry points um, for, for folks who are dipping their toes in and all the way up to the folks who are, are, are the insiders. So that's fantastic. And you mentioned this um, when you were talking earlier, this idea of ushering um, in the art of gathering, Parker writes about managing your guests transition into your gathering. And she says, none of us shows up as a blank slate to anything. And I think that's, that's so true. We're coming from work. We're coming from family commitments, from bad traffic. It's, it's not always easy to leave those things behind. But um, Parker says, you know, when, when gatherings fail to usher, they often waste their own potential. And I've seen so you do some interesting things with ushering. Can you give us an example or two of how an arts organization might do that? Yeah, I love this concept. And it's definitely, I feel like um, Priya Parker gave me new language for something that I've been thinking about for a long time. Because I do, I think our job as artists is to create that alternative world that she, she mentions and to take us out of our everyday, whether that means going deeper or creating something richer. And you cannot do that if you've just answered an email and like walked through the door, you know? So um, I try to create experiences that will make people feel present in this moment so that they're not only out from behind their screens, but they're not even thinking about their screens or that email or what's for dinner or their to-do list. They're very, they're present in this alternative universe of joy and beauty. And so depending on what the repertoire is, what the music is, we'll do it differently. Um, at our carnival concert, uh, which is meant for families and it's very playful as the name suggests, we start with a parade where it's this, you know, 20 minute long parade with giant puppets and stilt walkers and drag queens. And we invite the audience to be, to march with us. Um, there's really less audience than there are paraders and it leads directly to the beginning of the concert. So it really creates that sense of, of party and fun and silliness. Um, We've, uh, the last concert I did before the pandemic was a tenebrae concert where we started behind the music, the audience with all the lights off and we progressed forward bringing light into that space and that sort of physical representation of change, darkness, and then bringing in light, I think was really, um, really beautiful and helping us kind of enter this alternative, reflective, emotional state that turned out we really needed a few weeks later. Um, <laughs> And then even things like our holiday concert, which uh, we, right when you walk in the door at the holiday concert, if you're with a young person, we hand you an activity packet and a, and a um, whatever they're called, popsicles or whatever. Uh, uh, candy cane. Uh, candy cane, thank you. Little Jewish girl, can't remember Winter the word. Popsicle. <laughs> yeah. Um, and what we want to show is it's family friendly. You're welcome to be here. It's okay to kind of for kids to come in and out of the music, to be on the floor, whatever, that it's about creating this intergenerational community environment where we can all experience the art together and take from it what we need at our various moments in life. That's awesome. And I, one other example that I've seen of ushering is um, Garzington Opera. They they greet their guests with a trumpet fanfare, which I think yeah, that's is a, so cool. another wonderful idea. So believe it or not, we are actually really close to the end of our time together. And I just want to pause here um, so we can provide the opportunity for any 
of our viewers who want to weigh in. Um, if any of them have any questions for Emily before we wrap up, I'm going to be looking for them in the chat. So we're getting a lot of comments here along the way, which we'll probably have to review later on. But we're excited um, to read them. Yeah, it's, it's great. A lot of engagement there. Um, but but as we're waiting for any questions here, uh, I have one for you, which is, you know, what has been your most popular event over the past couple of years for your audiences? I mean, we're Mainers, so people love beer. So we back in beer has been a, a longstanding tradition that people people really love. Um, uh, the Bachbenz yoga that we do um, is a, a favorite that people look forward to and ask us about every year. Um, gosh, I think I think the carnival concert came out of the pandemic, so we've only had uh, two years to do it, but. But already people have said that it feels like an embodiment of summer and the beginning of that schools out energy. So that's that's a really wonderful compliment to receive about classical music. That's great. So Molly here has a comment. She's asking, um, is there a new idea from the art of gathering that you are hoping to try, Emily? Ooh, uh, yes. I mean, lots actually. But mm -hmm. one that I have been thinking a lot about is the concept of um, invitation and priming. So, um, so much of this book resonated with me, but also felt like it was aimed at either much smaller gatherings than a concert or mm -hmm. gatherings like um, corporate events where you have to be there and it's very clear who's in charge. Like, part of my challenge is I have to encourage you to come and, and to buy into this thing that I've created. And so I've been thinking a lot about um, the invitation. Are there ways that we can cue the audience beyond just the name and the venue about what there there is expected of them and what they will be experiencing? And then also um, the, the prompts that she uses at her corporate events about asking people to answer questions mm. before they arrive so that they're thinking about those things as they come yeah. in. And then she's able to kind of say it back to them in a way that connects them to that reflection. I would love to do that with concerts. Mm -hmm. And um, it's going to require that people buy into my crazy ideas. But so far, that's worked. So <laughs> I don't know why this one won't. Absolutely. Um so another question, what is the average size of your orchestra for each event? Ooh, good question. So I tend to do, we're a project-based orchestra. So we tend to do things, usually chamber orchestra size, I would say between like 15 and 30, 40 musicians. Um, if it's with choir, then often it'll be about 80 people on stage but I think that that's it's that is purposely designed that way it is much easier to take a chamber orchestra into a street fair or um, to bring them to a brewery than it is a symphony orchestra with not only 70 members but also you need to have the timpanis that come out of here and you know all of these controlled environments mm -hmm. um, and I'm very clear with my musicians when I hire them that we will be performing in unusual environments so if their violin is sacred and they don't feel comfortable performing with a door open or, um, you know, with humidity being a little bit flex, this might not be the right gig for them. Um, and uh, it's a challenge, but we're making it work. Um, another question, how do you feel this approach has impacted ticket sales and public support? So, um, so we try and make as many events as possible for free. And that is, um, it's a, 
challenging business model, but it's working for us because what we see is that the diehards who come to our concerts, the people who love classical music, one, we're giving them an opportunity to experience this music in an environment that feels good to them. Mm -hmm. Two, we're inviting them to go deeper by creating these salon experiences where they get to talk to these musicians they love and they get to geek out with other geeks about classical music, but also they love this music and they're really worried about it dying. And so mm -hmm. they are so thrilled to see that we are creating experiences for a new generation of music lovers and that we are, we, they love to see children and young people be enraptured and involved in what we're doing. They don't want to come to those events, but they definitely want to send us a check to make sure that other people get a chance to so that their grandkids yeah. and their kids can go to them. So um, a lot of positive support. That's great. Uh, and then one last one. How do you choose repertory to match the emotional needs of your audience? By that, I mean, do you survey your audience before your program, before you program an event? No, uh, I'm a little bit of a dictator. I just sort of listen to myself and to where um, members of my community are are where they are. We were very purposeful with our first program after the car, uh, after the pandemic. It needed to be light and festive and funny and jubilant mm -hmm. and and it needed to feel like all the best things in life the concert that i'm preparing for this fall is really aimed at giving us some space to um process and and be thoughtful as a collective because it's been a really hard last couple of years and new hard things are showing up all the time and so mm -hmm. being able to be in a space together where we can hold a space to think Think about how we're feeling and and um, making it through. I think is really powerful. So, mm -hmm. if you have recommendations, I'm always open, but I will not be soliciting. <laughs> um, and here's an interesting one. This will be our last one. How do you conceptualize this? Ooh, as a gathering for the musicians as well. How do you invite them to bring their full selves and creativity to the music? Oh, the musicians love what we're doing what mm. one of the fun fun things is we hire grammy winning musicians they're performing all over the country lots in boston and they know some of this repertoire from the symphony hall that they've done with with um, more established organizations and to play it again in this fresh and vibrant environment they are so thrilled to be a part of that. We just did vivaldi's four seasons with a project called uncertain four seasons and um Every musician in the orchestra had played Vivaldi's Four Seasons like 20 times before. But this, the way that we did it with this new arrangement and outdoors and with a parade and all these different elements, it was like they were playing it fresh for the mm. first time. And, and that's what they told me. I'm not making that up. So it's really fun to be able to create what my professional musicians refer to as peak musical experiences. Oh, that's awesome. That's fantastic. All right. Well, Emily, this has been such an energizing conversation. Your passion is obvious. Um, and, and for me, it's so exciting to see all of these innovative ways that you're bringing classical music to your community. And in particular, expanding the perceptions that, that outsiders might have about classical music, which is such important work these days. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me and letting me talk about it. So for those of you who are interested in learning more, you can follow Emily here on LinkedIn or you can follow Classical Uprising on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. But I also encourage you to learn more at their website, classicaluprising.org. Take care, everyone. Enjoy the rest of your week.
If you want more actionable ideas for growing your audiences by centering the customer, subscribe to the blog at cultureforhire.com. Be sure to click follow so you don't miss the next podcast episode and help others find their way to this podcast by leaving a rating or a review.